Well, hey there, and welcome to The Post, a Redemption Church podcast. I'm your host for today, J.P. Gaylord. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to be touching again on Genesis 18, 19, the life of Lot, and just some of the struggles through this difficult passage of Scripture. We are joined today, as always, maybe not always, but by Charles Kirby. Happy spring, everybody. What a great time. It's almost spring. It is spring. It is spring. It is spring. Some people are pushing back. Our next guest is Justin Kemmer, who apparently doesn't think it's spring. I won't push back, no. Just Charles stole my greeting. I I just wanted to say happy spring. Everybody's ready, aren't we? Right? Yeah, we are. I think so. 50 degrees, baby. I mean, everybody loves some 50 degrees and, you know, maybe some snow on Saturday. I feel like, like that's what the last two weeks have been. But spring is here. Spring is here. And... We are also joined by the head honcho, the great Pumbaa himself, <laughs> Josh Toby. Wow, what a what an introduction! I don't know, I don't know how to top that. Glad to be here. Awesome. What what is the great Pumbaa? Yeah, what is that? Like that's from you Lion that King. I don't. It's something from my childhood. <laughs> okay. uh, I believe Lion King is Simba. No, Pumbaa. Timon and Pumbaa. It's the warthog. Pumbaa. Right. We'll have to look that up. But... So he called me a warhog. That's what yeah. we're saying. That's what I heard. If you a see young Josh, warthog? if you see Josh, just make sure to call him the Great Pumbaa this this week, and we'll see if we can get uh, an origin story on that, which will likely set off one of our disclaimers. So, <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to start with a fun game we've played before called Over Under. I am going to give you a statistic in the form of a declarative statement. I will tell you right now the statement is not correct. You have to guess if the actual number is more over or less under than the number I give. Are you guys ready for this? Yeah, this is like the price is right. Let's do this. The first one actually is a very spiritual question or statement. That's too hard. Over. (laughs) The word thou appears in the King James Version 4,500 times. That is, that's under. It's, it's higher. Is that the, is that the right well, way? Yeah, that you want to take, take the over then. Then I want yep. over. Yeah, over is the actual. You think it's I more think it's, than that. I think it's more than that. Yeah, fourth. I takest the over. Okay. Very good. Very King James of you. <laughs> I'm just trying. Yeah. yeah. Trying. That's his upbringing. It just flew right out of him. Yep. You know, I, I would also say over. It is over. Yes. The actual numbers of number of times thou appears in the King James Version is 5,474. Yeah, that makes I sense. I do not believe that that takes into account any these. Mm. That's the with okay. two E's, just yeah. to clarify. Yeah. Well, how but, many times does it use girded your loins? All the times. <laughs> That's a very good question. We will have that on the next edition. All right. Consider that one noted. He girded his loins. All right. Uh, there are, the question number two, statement number two, there are 170 floors in the Burj Khalifa. That is the tallest building in the world. Is that Dubai United, or something? Yeah, Dubai. 170 floors in the Burj Khalifa. I'm going to go over. 
You think it's more than 170? Yeah, I think it's more than 170. I agree. Those those buildings are are tall. They are there. tall. And 170 is not tall. There's got to be so. at least 200. <laughs> you are all wrong. Uh, it is only 163 floors. Wow. So, so their floors must be a lot taller than yeah, normal they're, floors. <laughs> yeah, they go vaulted ceilings yeah, on every on. floor. Yeah, come on. Yeah. Let's just say those floors are not regulation size. <laughs> uh all right, question number three, statement number three. There are 50 countries in Africa. 50 countries I in Africa. I did see something on Africa last week online. It showed a picture of the continent with many other continents inside it. Yes, it is a very large continent. Under. You think there are fewer than 50 countries? I do. Okay. Justin, Josh, what you got? I'm just counting them in my head right now. This might take a while. Yeah. <laughs> oh my. I'll go under. I think it's close, but I'm going to go under as well. Have all three of you gone under? Yes. We did. Well, your answers have all gone under as well because it is actually over. There are 54 countries oh, in Africa. Oh, guys. Yeah. Unfortunately for you. I was counting. You know, name, name 10. <laughs> name 10. <laughs> All right. Number four. This one's fun. Uh, the microwave has been around for 72 years. That would give us a, what, a 1951? So when was Back to the Future? How far back did he go? 1965? <laughs> Is that where he went? Trying to think if they had a microwave. We're talking about the original invention of the microwave, just ah, to be clear, and not gotcha. necessarily so, the like prevalent actual yeah. home owned microwave. I'm gonna so, go over. It's been around for longer than seventy two years. Well, yeah. I mean it, you didn't you didn't give me the option of longer, you gave me the option of over under. Right, Are just, you talking about like that device right there? Charles that I'm is pointing at. It's let a microwave. the record show. Let the record show. <laughs> Charles is pointing at said microwave oven right there. Well, not that specific microwave, but the idea of cooking through food using microwaves. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Well, that one and is an apparatus that yeah, will that actually seven. accomplish that. Okay. Um, I'm going I'm gonna go over with the invention being 1947. Oh. <laughs> I'm going over. Okay. I'm going to go under, just to go the opposite direction. All right. Well, that means somebody has to have gotten it right. Yes, the good. The actual answer is over. Yes, good. Some buddies good. have gotten it right. That's uh, wrong. 1945, actually, oh, the year of the invention points. of the microwave. So Not that it's a microwave, because we had ovens in our Grand Rapids campus that were from 1950s, and they were awesome. Do you remember that, Cameron? Vaguely. Uh, last question. The average heart weighs eight ounces. That's right. I specifically chose eight ounces, so you can tell me if you think it weighs more or less. So I'm comparing than, it to a steak. Yeah, that's, yes. what it, that's what it is. <laughs> yep. More or less Under. than an eight-ounce steak. The, the average heart of what age? A human. Human. We'll call it an adult. Okay. I think. It's important. A 22-year-old, six-month... 287-day adult. My answer's still under. Under? Okay. Going over. You're going over? I'm going over, and I believe the average weight of a regular human heart is 
11.2 ounces. Very close. It is actually over, and it's 11.6 ounces. Ah, missing out on bonus Dude, points. I'm sorry. So that is a good steak with a bonus portion, if you want to think <laughs> of it that way. <laughs> all right, well... Let's move on. Uh, we are going to talk about all of the extra stuff in Genesis 18 and 19, The Life of Lot. We've just finished a few sermons on this. And from talking with uh, you guys who have preached on this, there is just a lot of other stuff going on, a lot of extra things to think about uh, that didn't necessarily make it into the sermon. So with that, Josh, I want to turn it over to you. Uh, what do you have on your heart to share? Uh, what do you want to dig into? Yeah, there's lots going on in, in Genesis 19 specifically, but I think it kind of backs up a little bit to even chapter 18, verse 21, when God is having a meal, leaving a meal with Abraham, the angels are with him, and the angels go down, right? They go down to see whether they to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me, God says, which is a very interesting statement. And so you have this whole idea of outcry. Now, Charles, we've had conversations about outcry. I think we see that unpack a little bit in Genesis 19 of what the outcry actually is related to how Sodom is living and what's happening in their hearts and in their lives. I think that speaks and gives clarity to that. But we also followed the character of Lot uh, this past week specifically, more of a character study on him and his family. And um, man, I... I Asking the question, like, what, what would cause you to implode your life? And we look at just four different dominoes. I mean, I can see those dominoes. I've seen those play all my life, too, in, in, in many different ways. You look at something, you lust for something, you long for something, and then you live in something, right? And so just an opportunity to take time just to survey our own hearts and our lives. But I think there's lots going on in this text that we don't have time to always hit in a Sunday morning message. And so... What is there any angle to you guys that you'd want to just unpack first? I mean, there's specific things that pop out to me, but I just think through, is there something in this story that, you know, we just maybe got to touch on or we didn't touch at all that we could take a few moments and just kind of unpack? I think for me, it, you know, you guys, Charles and Josh, you've taught through the text for people and just sitting in the, the seat and, and being part of audience and, and learner and listener in, in those settings. And you see Abraham trying to intercede for Lot and it's on the basis of, of the number of, of righteous within Sodom and Gomorrah. And then you dig deeper into this story and where, where are you finding the, the righteous? You look at Lot's family Lot is going to get rescued with his wife for a moment and his daughters. And then what you see is the destruction of Lot's wife as she looks back. And then you see the darkness of Lot and his daughters. And I'm still left asking, who, who's righteous? And we've wrestled with this because we've seen Lot being known for New Testament as, as righteous. And you come back to like, how? And, and I think we, where that takes my mind is, is back to the good news of the gospel where, yeah, none are righteous, no, not one. How is Lot or anyone else righteous? And it's because he is made righteous. And I, two, there's, two, there's two pictures, well, a little, somewhat of the same picture that has stood out to me in the, in the text was, 
on two occasions, Lot is saved um, where someone had, where the angels grabbed him by the hand. And first it was when the town was surrounding his door, they're pulling him in to safety. And then eventually when they're saying, get up, it's time. They're seizing Lot was the word there, but again, grabbing him by the hand and pulling out. And it's, that's the, because God is being merciful to him. And so those are, those are incredible pictures as I even look at my own life and my own path of the domino effects of destruction. Because in the end, what does it take to uh, avoid destruction or be saved out of destruction? It's gonna be the hand of the Lord. It's gonna be his mercy. It's gonna be him pulling me out of, of, of that destruction. And so I love that picture, but it leads itself to just even wrestling with just even the, the righteous aspect of, of Lot. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, how the story ends is what we learn about the Bible is dark, right? He's sitting in a cave. He's gone through all these four different dominoes. He's seen his life destroyed. He's lost every possession. All the things that he loved and lusted after and longed after are gone. The love of his life, probably his wife, is, is, is gone. He probably has regret of how he led his family. He has no possessions and is living in a cave with his daughters. And his daughters get him to drink. And I think it would have been pretty easy to convince a guy who's in pain to drink. I think about the regret. I think about the tension for me is like, why not go back to Abraham? Why, why choose to stay in a cave? You've lost everything. Why not go back to your uncle who's loaded financially, who could probably just give you, he'd probably just give you a bunch of stuff to start over again. There's no insurance policy here. You, you, you know what I mean? And so I just think that's a dark scene there that we didn't get a ton of time to sit in that, ends his story in a very dark way, which makes us ask the question, how can this guy be described as righteous? And you make, you make a good point. Why, why didn't he go back to Abraham, even as my, my study of Genesis through this series? What you have seen true of Lot is that he is safe when he's with Abraham. He, they take that, there's the opportunity where they split, but even you go back to Genesis 14, Abraham goes and fights to actually rescue Lot and Sodom and really cities that are on the map of being destroyed and God uses Abraham to actually rescue them. So they, they experience, maybe it's a common grace at this time, to, but at the same time, they experience the grace of God saving their city from the attacks of the kings out east. And so... What's interesting is Lot coming out of Sodom and seeing all that destruction, he, in my mind, is still almost looking for like, I'm not going to make it that far. I, I'm not going to get there. Um, I, I'm still maybe looking for an easier way out um, to where he identifies Zoar and wants to rest in, in that city. And there's this picture there because he hasn't returned to Abraham, he's actually not safe and he wasn't because of what then takes place with his daughters. But I mean, practically speaking, I, I love the easy way out. Even, even after experiencing the grace and mercy of God, there's still at times where I am attempting in conversations with God to abuse that grace and mercy to still get what I want instead of what God, God wants from me. Yes, yeah, I read this, 
one of the hard things that I wrestled through was, yes, Lot's unworthiness, but also in verse 29 of Genesis 19, it says, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And I look at that and I go, it's interesting that Lot, if you think of where we've been in Genesis, Lot does not have the covenant of Abraham. He's outside of this covenant. He was not given the command to circumcise the males in his family. So he is now uncircumcised, which if you look at the Bible and the story of that, that would be considered him a Gentile. He would be actually outside of this covenant. And his people who come from him are the Moabites and the Ammonites, which are also Gentile. And so these are people who are rejected within the covenant community of Israel. Yet in this picture of salvation, you see that through Abraham, a nation through Lot and his connection with Abraham, God actually saves Lot on the basis of remembering Abraham, not Lot. And I look at that and I'm like, that is that is a story of the gospel because through Abraham comes Jesus and through Jesus, the covenant, the new covenant is then applied to us who are outside of the people of Israel. And I look at that and I go, this is ultimately an image of the gospel that on behalf of someone else being remembered, another person is saved. And so as we think of even Jesus, God remembering Jesus, I mean, you could say that when God looks at Charles, he remembers Jesus and saves Charles on the basis of Jesus. And so I think as we're looking at this, we're seeing a head of a covenant. We're seeing someone who brings about the blessing, which is what Abraham had been doing in interceding for Sodom and for Lot, which is what Jesus now does. He always lives to make intercession. But again, some of this stuff in the sermon, I wish we could have had time. I went way over, so I didn't have the time to do it. But this is the stuff where you look at it and you go, there are beautiful echoes to Jesus in this story. And we're just gonna kind of highlight some of those. But that was one that stuck out to me. I would ask a question too, and Josh, I don't know if you wrestled with this too, but Lot's wife, right? Here she is, this is a woman who is saved out of destruction, right? But is destroyed. And I look at that and I go, is this? And, and as you mentioned in on Sunday, you said Jesus simply says, remember Lot's wife and doesn't necessarily extrapolate on it in the sense of like, this is why, like understanding something was gonna happen to the judgment, don't go back into it, so remember Lot's wife. But there's, I was wrestling through this idea of, so she experienced to some degree the grace and mercy of God because she was grabbed by the hand. The Lord being merciful to Lot, but also his family. So she experienced the mercy of God in taking her out of a city. So I guess the question I would ask is, what, what would be salvation then? Because she was taken out, but went back in. Now, I'm not trying to get into the weeds of can you lose salvation, but there is an aspect of when is salvation actually applied and what does salvation look like? Because clearly we would say her heart was not transformed. But then you could also argue neither was Lot and his daughters. So what do you, what's that tension? I think there's a level for her to where she experienced deliverance, but that wasn't enough to sway her heart. And it was a physical, it's a picture of the spiritual is what we're saying. And that's what, that's why these stories matter because it gives us spiritual relevance for today in relation to what the gospel is. But in the physical story, it was a physical salvation yeah. that she turned her back on. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's important. Um, 
don't know if you want to add to that. No, I thought that was a question for the big Pumba. Yeah. And and so I thought that was just well, one, I, one you were going to handle. Grand grand Pumba. Ah, the, the grand. <laughs> grand, grand. So I I think there's a lot of tension there. I And we can keep, yeah, I don't want to go deeper into that. One observation I would make that kind of relates to that a little bit is we learn a lot about the character of God here. And based on what you said, he remembered Abraham. Lot was saved because of God's faithfulness to Abraham. That's why Lot was is ultimately saved here, right? Like we are saved because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you see God's glory revealed through mercy and you see it revealed through judgment. And that's an important dynamic to understand here in the Bible is that when Christ goes to the cross, you see his mercy collide with his wrath. And Jesus was there. Jesus was love. He was grace, mercy in our place. Yet he still received the wrath of a holy God poured out on himself. And we see that right here in this story as well, that God's patience was, it was done and it was time to pay. And he delivered, man, he, he delivered death to everything in that city. I mean, it, it was a scorched graveyard, yeah. right? And the truth is he still chose to save some, which we know isn't deserved. So there's a level of that God revealing the weight of who he is, the glory of who he is. He does it through his justice and his judgment and his wrath. And he just like, he, just like his grace, his mercy, his kindness, also his love reveals the same thing. So there's multiple ways that he reveals the weight of who he is, which I also feel like is a very interesting dynamic in this story. Yeah, as you say that, sorry, JP, go ahead. No, uh, you brought up Lot's wife and the fact that Jesus evokes the image of Lot's wife. And I went and checked that out. It's in Luke 17, specifically verse 32, uh, but it's in the context of Jesus basically saying, hey, like the day of judgment is coming and when it comes, like run, just get out. Uh, And that's where he says, simply remember Lot's wife. And I think the reason he does that, and I think you see it in Lot's wife, is do you, do you actually understand what is at stake and what is happening right now? There is a tendency in Lot, in Lot's wife, in Lot's family to totally underestimate the gravity of the circumstances. Judgment's coming. Oh, yeah, God's going to be angry and upset, and he's probably going to say mean things, right? Yeah, yeah slap our hands. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whereas God is saying, no, this is total, utter destruction and you need to do everything within your means to try and escape it. Lot's wife doesn't. Um, I think, Josh, you brought this up in the sermon. She's lagging behind. She ends up looking back. That is not, oh my gosh, I can't even fathom the kind of destruction that is coming. Uh, so I just need to do everything within my power to get out of here. And I think this is part of what Jesus is saying, one, about end times, but also about sanctification, which is you, you don't understand the, <laughs> the anger and wrath of God that is about to come upon humanity. Don't, don't look back at sin. Run and do everything within your power to escape it. Uh, yes, it is God's grace and mercy and the Holy Spirit working in, in us that gets us down the road with sanctification, but it's still kind of that, well, you know, uh, God is working and helping me grow, but I still need to do everything within my power. Uh, 
I don't know that we can ever fully understand the consequences of our action or our sin, at least not until that gets revealed in a, uh, a physical way when God does judge the earth. But I think this is the lesson that Jesus is bringing out with Lot's wife is she didn't understand the gravity of the situation. The question for you in Jesus's audience or for us today is, do you really understand the gravity of the situation uh, of your sin and the fact that Jesus actually is providing a way out. Yeah, I was going to say one of the things about this passage is Josh was mentioning just this idea of the judgment of God. I, I wanted to note because there's so many people who have, and I just heard of a former student of mine uh, who's really wrestled through this and actually abandoned his faith because he looks at Jesus being different than the God of the Old Testament. Like they, they make this statement, like Jesus is different than the God of the Old Testament because he is more compassionate and kind and loving. Can I just tell you that that's who Abraham is talking to? He's talking to a pre-incarnate Jesus, the visible Yahweh. I mean, he's, he's talking to him. It even says in verse 33 of 18, and the Lord covenant Yahweh went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. So again, this isn't the word out of a cloud. This is a man who is there with him. Right, there he is. Jesus is stated as the one who is the judge of all the earth. He is the one who announces the destruction and sends the destruction upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus is not a little kitty that you pet and have sit on your lap as a good friend of yours, apart from humble repentance and faith in him. That is when he is one who comes to you and near you and makes promises to you that need to be accepted by faith in your part and then you fully submit to him. These people clearly shunned everything of God. There is no kindness or grace given to these people. As James says, like the Lord opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. These people were opposed because as Josh mentioned, like Ezekiel says, they were pr there was pride. That is opposition. God opposes, is an enemy towards that type of person. And so the command being humble yourself is to submit to and to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But I look at this and I say, this is Jesus. Our view of Jesus has to be that he is the one who is told over and over again in the Bible. That was, that was Paul's statement to the Athenians. That was Peter's statement to Cornelius that Jesus is the judge of both the living and the dead. And he's proven that he will judge the earth by raising him from the dead. But he is the one, as Revelation says, who holds the keys of death and Hades. In other words, he has the power to send you to death and Hades. He is the one who makes that statement. And I go, we, we have a very passive, very uh, weak view of Jesus if we don't see him as this terrifying divine warrior at times who punishes the guilty who are opposed to him. That's what he will do. And that actually gives us hope because that's what Peter writes and why he says that he is able to hold under judgment those who are wicked and able to save the righteous. And he gives the example of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and of Noah and the flood. And so the two major pictures of divine judgment that you have in the Bible really are given as examples of God's right wrath and God's perfect salvation of those who are his. But that's all from Jesus. All Both from the him. wrath and he becomes and the, the he the receives the judgment himself too on the cross. So that's yes. so wild. Yes. Yes. He's giving it 
But also receiving it. Yes, yes. And he is now the means by which that is turned away and placed in him. I also had a question about the drunkenness. Like if you read the drunken part, it's, I asked the question, why are people always getting drunk after massive salvation and massive judgment? Like Noah did the same thing. Like Noah's in a tent, he first plants a vineyard, weird innuendo happening there. And then here, guy gets drunk, he's in a cave, weird things are happening. And you're like, why after like the two great judgments of God is the then person who gets saved drunk? And, and I think you hinted at it a little bit, but you're like, it, that's staggering. Like the, the, yeah, like, both of them are declared righteous, like Noah even more so, right? You're like, man, this guy over and over, but then is totally wasted in a, in a tent. It's like Noah I get. Noah stood on the face of opposition for years building this boat yeah. where there's no water. Yeah, and then just spent how many, like a whole yeah. year yeah. in a boat with and, animals. And, that, and then Lot, though, is in a spot where it's like, he's just passive hanging out in the city, doesn't want to bother anybody, but is against the sin too. You know, he calls them out, don't act wickedly. But I think I think just practically speaking, and, and I like the word JP used, and it was underestimate. So, you know, not to be corny, but you started with a game over under. And I, I think some of the greatest hindrance, we can be the greatest. Let me try to phrase this the right way. Um, at times, the greatest hindrance to our sanctification can be how we underestimate our sin, how we underestimate God's grace, how we underestimate uh, unwise choices. So look at Lot's life. He prob I would say he underestimated the importance of the decision when he and Abraham stood and went different directions. How many times did he underestimate the influences in, in his life that allowed him to gravitate towards Sodom? How many times did he underestimate the, the darkness and the destruction that Sodom had influencing his mind, his family? his daughters, his son-in-laws. I think there's an aspect here where Lot was held in high regard in Sodom because they knew he was Abraham's relative and Sodom experienced Abraham going to war for them. So it's like, hey, if, if Lot's still here, um, maybe we're still good. Uh, maybe that's even license. But there's so many things in our life that I think are comparable to Lot because of what we underestimate. And even still here, Lot is, whether it's Noah or Lot, in a way they're underestimating the, the salvation that they've received to allow it to actually begin to transform. But I can think of those things in my own life where it's just like, I'm actually underestimating my sin as it causes even relationships. Well even with three boys, you know what I mean? The, the effects might not be everyday tangible of my own sin on my family, but over the course of time, how, what is the drift that it causes? And so I think there are so many things in our lives, whether it's actually the goodness of God or it's the wrath of God or it's his mercy or it's his grace or it's his judgment or it's his salvation that we're never taking the over. I don't know that I've ever overestimated maybe the effects of my own sin on my life. I believe I've always underestimated, which has been a hindrance to my own sanctification. But what if we just truly, because I think there's oftentimes all throughout scripture, remember, remember, remember. Yeah. 
But I wonder if in addition to being reminded of the things we so easily reget, we forget, do we also need the, the, the charge to don't underestimate? Mm. Don't underestimate. Mm. And, and it's about who God is and, and what he's done. I was just going to add to that. I think the, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, I think historically the church of Jesus has said, yeah, that makes sense. There's homosexuality there, so God had to judge it. Mm. And, I, and, and while I believe that is homosexuality in the text, and while I do believe homosexuality is sin, I, I just want to say, like, we don't deserve salvation. Right? And, and, and I think reading the story, we realize, actually, we have more in common with Lot and his family than we would actually like to confess. And without Jesus, we were never going to be pulled out of our sin, just like Lot was never pulled out of the city. And so I think that's an important dynamic here that is, that is actually missed. That's, that's actually covered by the sin, the sexual sin that exists in this text, that we miss out actually on the true message of what's actually happening here, that, that there is a God who's going to carry out judgment, but there's also a God who loves. Hmm. Josh, as you were saying, and you mentioned Ezekiel 16, about the passage of Sodom. And you mentioned it as well, which I didn't mention at all. Uh, so I'm glad you did. It's the fact that in the passage of Ezekiel 16 and also in the gospels where Jesus is talking to the Israelites of his day, is the condemnation actually comes stronger against God's people. And he says that you are actually worse than the city of Sodom. You're actually worse than the nation of Samaria. Like. As you talk about underestimating, like Hebrews talks about how shall we escape if we neglect or don't value or underestimate so great a salvation. Like there's, it seems like the ante is so much higher based on the revelation that you have received. And so a message in the church is the Bible indicates like judgment starts with the household of God. And if the the household of God is judged, how much more so, the Bible says, the uh, wicked and the sinner, in other words, after in the day of judgment. But right now, the Bible seems to indicate that God's people are being pruned or being tested to see if their genuine faith is there. And I look at that and I say, there's really an indication of our heart towards the Lord. Is it growing calloused? Like the warning of the Bible is that there is a progress, uh, progression from transforming that actually stops perhaps and doesn't value and actually moves into conforming, which is what we would say Lot was with his daughters. They're moving towards a con conforming to the way of the world. But Jesus in his indication like of the severity of judgment due to Sodom, as we could clearly see in this passage, he then says, if the very things that were done to, that were done before you, in other words, the Jews of his day, were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. And then he goes, they will actually rise up in judgment against you on the day and claim that you are actually more wicked. So, so talk about that, like this presumed righteousness that we assume, because it's easy, it is so easy for me to look at this and go, you're right, I'm not a homosexual. I would never do stuff like that. And yet we know that there's this, loosening or undervaluing or under, um, I would say, basically making it not as important, our individual sin. So how do I, reading this passage, knowing that I'm not doing what Sodom and Gomorrah did, but yet understanding that there's this dwelling sin within me that needs to be dealt with? Like, what That's do we do I think that? Jude 7 is helpful. When Jude 7 mentioned, like, sexual morality of the city and they pursued unnatural desires, right? So it's like, I think... 
I think churches are full of sinners, yeah. right? And we battle our own sexuality and we have our own struggles related to that topic and it can go a thousand different ways. But that's where it's like wrong for us to point the finger at Sodom, like how bad it is when really there's similar things happening in our own hearts and our own lives if, if, if we're going to be honest. And so, and I think that's the warning of the darkness of all sexual morality, which homosexuality would fit into, yeah. right? And um, so I think there is a warning here uh, for even the righteous that we need to hear, that we need to keep surrendering those things to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And because we can see all sorts of lists in the Bible yeah. that list all sexual morality and, and things like these and all sorts of lists that will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Like like it's it's a pretty, pretty dark text when you see those things, right? And so... Um, what can't happen in our sanctification is, yep, I'm saved. Yep, I know Christ, but I'm going to pursue what I want to pursue in this category of my life mm-hmm. without the accountability of the Lord. Yeah. And the problem is the Lord's going to hold you accountable to those things. And everything needs to come under his lordship. And so I think that's a vital thing as we pursue righteousness that I try to push our people on too to say, yeah, but w- what needs to be surrendered to him? Like, where's Jesus not Lord of somewhere in your sexuality or somewhere else in your life that that you allowed to roam free, but you're willing to point the finger here because look at what they did. But it's easier for me to not share that because it's not seen. Like here, these people are blatant. I mean, it is explicitly, these people are wicked. I mean, when the angels go, hey, uh, we're done here. Let's let's get you out here because there's no evidence. Like, it's obvious. But then talk about this idea of the Bible indicates, and you mentioned it, I believe, is this idea of even looking with like, again, it, starting the domino is not the action. It is actually the heart. Yeah. So if we're looking at that, what, what would confession, what would community look like? What is, a, what is a good thing that we would pursue at redemption that would say, hey, this is why the dominoes fall and how do we stop necessarily that destruction and imploding our life in that way? Yeah, I think that, you know, the heartbeat of redemption at the beginning is really to be a place where we can be open about our own struggles and a place where we're going to be honest. Because if we're going to be honest, then we can actually receive good news that no matter what you've done, there's hope for you. And I think even in our group life, the heartbeat for our church is this is an opportunity for us not just to get together and talk about the text of the morning and dive in and, and develop Bible study skills, but it's also to help apply those truths to our heart and be open and honest with one another um, in living in a culture that has prosperous ease. Yeah. Like we saw in Ezekiel 16. That's how Sodom was described. So we don't want to mess that up. But the truth is there's a lot of spiritual growth to be had that we've robbed ourselves of because of a willingness just to be honest and open and transparent about really where we are and what the work and the growth that I can still have in any role that I have in my life. Well, an unwillingness to be transparent and honest with one another, but even to your point, Sunday, is that's the unwillingness, but what is the willingness? It's the willingness to be unwise. And I think that's what's been, what stood out to me even through Lot's story, it was that this total implosion of, Lot's family or the total implosion of our own lives doesn't actually begin with a sinful choice. I believe it begins with a series of unwise choices because when it's not, when we're not waking up each and every day asking what's, what's the wise thing to do, not what's the sinful thing to do because I I think those are obvious, but it's not always obvious as far as what, what is actually the wise 
choice to do that is going to put me on a path or set my feet on solid ground to where I, I'm pro protected in a way, where, where the guard is up. Um, because I, I've held on to it a long time ago, but the decision to be unwise leaves you in probably more than two places, but two that I think of, where is you are either welcoming temptation or uh, you're about to sin. And so the unwise choices is actually preparing you for sin, whereas the wise choices is actually uh, preparing you to battle against that sin. And ultimately, it's, it's about, you know, the, the well-known phrase in the Christian world of be killing sin or it will be killing you. And, and that's going to begin with wisdom. Now, certainly we can go on a long road of like, well, what's wise? You know what I mean? How am I wise? And, and all those things. But wisdom can be maybe another conversation for another time. Yeah, and that's a totally different dynamic to live your life by, uh, saying what's wise versus unwise rather than, well, what's sin and what's not sin? Because they're totally different lines to be trying to stay on one side or another of. Uh, and I think, you know, if I can speak for myself, I would think for a lot of people, I've been looking at it totally wrong. Where's Where is the... You know, uh, you can think of it when we went to the Grand Canyon and they've got these fences, which are not the edge of the cliff, uh, you know, but <laughs> is it really wise to go over the fence and get closer to the edge of the cliff? And yet here I am living my life so many times saying, well, where's the edge of the cliff and how close can I get to it without actually crossing over the edge of the cliff? And yet wisdom uh, which seems to be the heart of the Lord is, hey, you really shouldn't be in that that weird middle ground. Why don't we just stay on the other side of the fence so it's not even an issue? Isn't it interesting how that can apply across the board to any gray area that exists in the Christian life? Yeah. Less about what sin and not sin, defining that so we have freedom to do what we want, but more of what would wisdom say? Yeah, this is good. Um I am amazed that we have had, what, a, a simple story that most people may know from like, I don't know that you really go over it in Sunday school, but you've probably heard of Sodom and Gomorrah and the story of Lot and things like that. And yet we've spent two, arguably three sermons uh, talking about it, uh, an entire podcast episode. And I feel like we're just beginning to scratch the service, surface. Uh, so praise God for the, the riches of his word and the fact that even, you know, a chapter of or two of, of Genesis is almost inexhaustible in a conversation with the Lord about what are you trying to teach me through this. So uh, that is just about all the time we have here for today. Uh, we want to thank you for joining us here on The Post. If you haven't already, we'd encourage you to click follow, subscribe, or like on your podcasting app just to make sure you get notified when we release an episode. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear those. Just connect with us via email, info at redemptionmi.org, or you can send us a message on social media, at RedemptionMI on Facebook or RedemptionChurchMI on Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.